this is Amy Hall, and you're listening to Stand to Reasons, hashtag STRask podcast. With me today is Greg Kokel. Hello, Amy. Hello, Greg. All right, here's a question from Tom Pointer. Some commands and instructions given in the Bible are meant to apply to everyone, while others were written to a specific people group at a specific time in history and only apply to them. Mm-hmm. How do we know when to think universally versus locally? That's a good question, and it's a hard one to answer in some cases. Um, Other cases, it's actually somewhat simple. Um, Think of the Mosaic Law, for example. The Mosaic Law is a contract. It's a contract between God and the nation of Israel. So strictly speaking, there is nothing that a Gentile is obliged to do that is in the Mosaic Law— because it's in the Mosaic Law. In the same sense, in this illustration we've often used, uh, as a resident of the state of California, while I'm in California, I have no obligation to keep Illinois' laws. Those apply to people in their state, not in our state, okay? And the Mosaic Law was given to form a theocracy with a group of people. And that that law has a number of different functions. And, you know, some people make a distinction between the moral law and the civil law and the ceremonial law. <clears throat> it turns out, though, for the Jews, all of those areas were morally obligatory for them to keep. If they didn't do the ceremonial stuff or the civil stuff the way God told them to do it, then they weren't doing the right thing. Okay? Um, now, so there's an example. Um Nothing in the law, and I'm choosing my words carefully here, nothing in the Mosaic Law, in virtue of being in the Mosaic Law, applies to Gentiles at any time. And since Jesus, and clearly after the book of Hebrews and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, nothing in the Mosaic Law as such applies to Jews either. Okay, now we can learn things from the Mosaic Law, and Paul tells us that, uh, but then somebody's asking, wait a minute, you mean we could murder and we could steal and all these other things that seem to be proscribed by the Mosaic Law? And my answer is, some things that you find in the Mosaic Law, which applies to the Jews, are in the law that applies to the Jews because they have a universal quality. So you're going to find homicide statutes in the state of California. You're also going to find homicide statutes in the state of Illinois. That's because homicide uh, statutes are required because m- murder is is not a parochial kind of concern. It's a human concern. And so there are universals that we see reflected in every state, and there are certain m- moral obligations expressed in the Mosaic Law because they stand above Mosaic Law. They should be in every law. They're universals. Okay? And you know this to some degree by reflection— you just think about it and realize, yeah, well, this isn't like, uh, you know, thou shalt not murder. Yeah, that sounds—it comports with our moral common sense that this is a universal, okay? When it says, don't eat shellfish, I don't have any sense that that's a universal. That seems to be something just for the Jews, and then Jesus clarified that later. Um, and so sometimes I'm reflection, 
and the way that it's described in the Mosaic Law helps you to know whether the thing is a universal. One of the biggest things, though, is that all the universals that are moral obligations to the Jews under the Mosaic Law turn out to be repeated in the New Testament where the Mosaic Law is not intact in, in the way it used to be for Jews. So uh, these are universals. Now notice what I'm doing. I, I have to make, in order to distinguish here, I have to I have to acknowledge a contextual concern. This is the big picture of the Mosaic Law. What is the nature of that law where these other laws, all these individual laws, show up? Okay, well, given the nature of it, that it's a contract with one group of people, we realize that it's going to be limited in its application to other people. When we look at some of those things, we also reflect on them. We say, well, this seems like it's bigger than this for the Jews. And then when it's repeated in the New Testament, uh, that affirms that. So so there is, a, there is a contextual issue that I'm trying to put into play here that helps me to de- decide. But at the same time, there is moral reflection you know, that, that helps out. Now, I think sometimes there's going to be ambiguities. There's a mixed bag on Sabbath, for example. You know, my conviction is that Sabbath is for Jews as a law. And by the way, Sabbath can't be changed to Sunday because that's not what the law says, sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. People who worship God on Sunday are not keeping the Sabbath. So that seems to be, a, a, especially with comments made in the New Testament about the Sabbath, something that is really, even though the principle of rest is really important, we can employ it, like other principles there, it's only law for the Jews. Okay, so on the one hand, sometimes we can figure these things out pretty quickly. On the other hand, it's more difficult on some things, and there may be differences of opinion, and we have to be charitable to those who disagree. Uh, The important thing are the reasons that we can gather for the view that some particular thing is applicable morally to that group of people and not to us, or vice versa. Um, So that's why I said, you know, some things are kind of easy, but other things are a little bit more difficult, and it's a matter of moral Mm decision-making. Well, first of all, it it takes looking at the context, so you have to read it in context to figure out. I mean, there there could even be individual commands. God gives a specific individual to do a specific thing right. that applies only to them. That individual, right. And that becomes clear as you read the context and you see, oh, just because God told, I'm trying to think of an example now. Well, Jesus told Peter to throw the net in the deep side of the lake. Right. Of the boat, right? <laughs> so that's not an instruction for us. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so some of this is common sense with reading, but... In terms of the Mosaic Law, the Mosaic Law, Paul explains, and this is in Galatians, he explains that, Galatians and Romans, but the promise made to Abraham, he says the promise that made to Abraham that he would be heir of the world was a promise made by grace. That was a promise. And the reason why it was by promise is so God could guarantee it, because if it depended on our works, he couldn't guarantee it. Mm-hmm. So then Paul says the, the, the law was added later because of sin, and it was, it was to reveal our sin, but it was also to direct their culture in a way that would reflect God. Mm-hmm. So what we see in the Old Testament commands is a reflection of God's character. So the main thing now for us to do is to look at those laws to find out 
what God's character is in order to know how we ought to act. And sometimes it is precisely in the way they did it, and sometimes it isn't. So you mentioned, for example, rest. And I know people will disagree on this, but, you know, Colossians explains that the Sabbath was a, here, here's what it says, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, there were some things in the Old Testament that were meant to point to Christ, and that was the things like the um, the sacrificial system that were meant to point to Christ so they were only shadows. Now that we have the real thing, we don't do those other things anymore. And again, just in case people are concerned about this, that doesn't mean that the principle of resting in God is not a good principle that reflects his character, and that is a good thing to engage in. Well, the Hebrews talks about the rest in God part, but that's resting from work. So there's kind of a an allegorical or analogical kind of feature to the Sabbath rest. Right. So, right. so even in the case of the Sabbath, it was pointing to our rest in Christ mm-hmm. from our works. And it's still a good thing today to rest one day of the week. There's nothing wrong with doing that. Or it's just days. not part of our law. <laughs> or two days. So, um, but there were, there were a couple of things I want to note because um, how this plays out, Paul, Paul is really clear. It's, it's amazing to me how much of the New Testament talks about the issue of law and why we don't sin. If you're not reading all the way through, you can miss this. But the more you read it, the more you, you understand what he's talking about. But he says in Romans 7 that it's just, you know, they were under the law. But just as when a woman's husband dies, then she's released from the law. In the same way, when we're in Christ, we die in released Christ. Released from that, that legal Sorry, relationship from with the husband. That, right. right, released from the law of marriage. In the same way, when we die with Christ, we're released from the Mosaic law and we're raised in Christ. And he says the purpose of that is so that we can bear fruit for God. And this mm-hmm. is because we have the Holy Spirit now to enable right. us to act in ways that reflect God. That's right. And in chapter 6, he he gives a couple reasons why we do this. Before I even get there, one one more thing about 2 Timothy. It says that the law is there to instruct us Mm -hmm. in what is good. So even though we're not under it as we are under any sort of statute or anything like that, we are still looking at the law to be trained in who God is. And then we're supposed to reflect that. So there are a couple reactions to this that people might have, and Paul actually addresses them. So the first one in chapter 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? In other words, we have died to our sinful nature, and now we should act in ways that reflect God. And then he says again, what what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? So the second reason is that we're not to be slaves to sin. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're, we're supposed to re- reflect God. We're supposed to die to our sin. We're supposed to reflect God to the world. And again, in Colossians, Paul talks about how we're supposed to set our eyes on 
things in heaven, not on earth, and consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and on and on. So the idea is that we have died to that old way, and now we're living not because the law is requiring us to live this way, but because we've been regenerated and we are new creatures because of Christ's death and resurrection and our death and resurrection in him, we are new creatures who now have the ability, because of the Holy Spirit, to bear fruit for God Mm -hmm. and to reflect God to the world and live in ways that reflect him. Mm -hmm. Now, we learn what that is by looking at the law. The law is there to instruct us in who God is and and how and what love looks like. It's another thing Paul says that for for the sake of love, that's why we don't mm-hmm. commit adultery or murder or all those things. So that's there to instruct us to what it means to love. So I think that's those are ways that you can look at this and the commands and what our goal is, it really helps to think about what our goal is. God's goal is to make us like Christ. Mm-hmm. So knowing that, <laughs> look at the commands and apply all these things to it and read read through the New Testament over and over because this was a huge deal. This was a huge thing for them to figure out at that time when there were Gentiles and Jews in the church. They had to figure out how this worked out, and so it's addressed over and over in there. Yeah. And so this is this is one thing I think I, I, I bring up questions about this probably more frequently than any other because I think it's a huge problem that Christians don't understand our relationship right. to the law. And because of that, we're vulnerable to people who come and say, well, if you're against homosexuality, why aren't you against eating shrimp? Yeah, shrimp. Like, what's the problem? You're not being consistent. Mm-hmm. And then what happens is, if Christians care about the Bible, what I'm seeing is, instead of them saying, oh, then homosexuality must be okay, what they're saying is, eating shrimp must be wrong. <laughs> and so I'm, there's this move by Christians who care about the Bible yeah. to take on the commands of the Mosaic Covenant that don't apply because they were shadows of what was to right, come. Right. And that's where the Curious. gospel's in danger. Especially since Jesus explicitly addressed that issue, declared all foods clean. But um, this, the, and I won't spend a lot of time on this, but, and I, I think that to get more detail on this, uh, we have a course called The Bible Fast Forward. And uh, that's, is that what we call it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. The Bible Fast yeah. Forward. It's had, <laughs> over the years, it's had different titles, so I get confused. It's uh, eight. 50-minute sessions with a workbook of about 150 pages, which is a complete syllabus of all the material that you can get from standard reason. You can print out the workbook, whatever. But it goes into much more detail um, on on these particular things. But notice that I said that there are things in the Mosaic Law that reflect universals. And so our appeal to the Mosaic Law with regards to homosexuality isn't an appeal to the law as the authority, because that law we're not under, but rather to the law as an expression of a universal which condemned homosexuality, because as the text says in Leviticus, it, it, that a, a man should not be lying with a man the way he lies with a f- woman. Okay, um, that's an abomination. So the language there is pretty strong. But notice that what the, the way the sentence is constructed, it identifies that this is not a natural or appropriate kind of thing. It's not the way God made things. 
And that takes us back to the beginning. Mm-hmm. So that's a wicked thing. And wicked things are still wicked, even in the New Testament time. And uh, that's the distinction. We're not just picking and choosing. We are acknowledging that there are different kinds of things in the Mosaic Law, things that pertain uniquely to Jewish culture and other things that reflect universal morality. And like we said earlier, sometimes it's not easy to separate separate one from the other, but in many things it is. I mean, clearly to me, tithing is part of the Jewish law because it served a function under the theocracy. Tithing is not a New Testament teaching. And even when Jesus said you should tithe, mint, dill, and cumin, in addition to doing the greater things like justice, etc., he was saying that in an Old Testament economy. In fact, the beginning of that discourse, he says, do everything that Moses tells you to do. Well, that's not applied to us. Jesus was speaking in that context. So now it's different. But that doesn't mean uh, that that nothing that was condemned under Moses um, applies as 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 sinful behavior now. It certainly does, because there are universals there. Anyway, the, the Course makes these distinctions in a, in a very clear way, I think. And you made a good point, Greg, that there are certain things that are, that are talked about in moral terms, such as saying it's an abomination or saying this is, this is um, I don't know, terrible in God's eyes or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then there are, there are things like the way you do the sacrifices, where it's not if you if you do it in a wrong way the problem isn't that you've you've broken a moral law a in itself yeah. but rather your rebellion against god and and him as the authority so mm-hmm. you're 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 not following his authority but it's not because there's a moral nature to it except in some but other there's indirect something way something inherently yeah. moral what makes that activity immoral is cuz god said do it this way and not that and way. And he had reasons so for that, of course. simply but, yeah. in virtue of his command. That's just like the other things you're saying. He gives a particular individual a command. Well, if God says to do it, you're, that person is supposed to do it. That's different than God identifying a universal, like thou shalt not commit adultery or uh, thou bear false witness or murder and all that. Those are universals, and they seem to be obvious on reflection. And that's why they're repeated in the New Testament. And the less you read around that command, the harder it's going to be to understand. By that I mean, if you're just picking out little, if someone says, what about this command, and you look at it, well, it might be harder to understand what is meant there than if you were actually reading through these things and getting a sense for the sections and the types of laws and all those sorts of things. I cannot stress enough (laughs) that Christians need to be reading their Bibles in from start to finish, holistic way. Yes, and over and over. Yeah, because we we need to shape our minds more than ever now. And part of shaping our minds is not just knowing specific laws. There's a whole culture. There there's a whole ethic that comes through as you're reading the story of what God has done as a whole that you don't get just from reading one verse here and one verse there, or even from somebody teaching specific ideas. There's something about reading the whole thing. I mean, think about any favorite book that you have or favorite series. The more you read it, the more you understand the world as a whole and you have a sense for it. And and the more, let's say, if somebody wrote another chapter and stuck it in there, you'd be able to tell because you know, you recognize what the truth is 
from this particular author. Mm-hmm. You recognize what fits in there and what doesn't. So what happens when you're shaping your mind this way is that when someone comes up to you and says, well, the Bible says such and so, and it doesn't sound like it matches with the whole that you've been reading, then you know to look mm-hmm. deeper and you're not completely uh, flummoxed or disturbed mm-hmm. by this this uh, claim that somebody makes. Well, uh, an example of that kind of in the micro is the passage in Leviticus 17 where it condemns homosexuality for the reasons I gave. It's a violation of the natural order. You're lying with a, wo- a man the way you should be lying with a woman is the point there. Uh, just above it, for someone to take exception, well, that's the Old Testament, doesn't apply. Well, what about this verse just above it that uh, condemns child sacrifice? What about the verse right below it that condemns bestiality? Are you okay with bestiality and child sacrifice now for the same reason you want to sanitize homosexuality in this passage? So that's the context again. You read the larger flow, just even in that chapter, and you realize that this is not just a disposable moral principle that applied in the unique circumstances of the uh, theocracy. And then when you broaden it out even farther, Greg, you go back to the beginning of Genesis. Mm-hmm. Like Jesus did. And, and like Jesus did. You see it in Genesis, and you see it with Jesus, the idea that God created them male and female. And now you find the greater framework for understanding what, who we are as human beings, mm-hmm. and all of these other things will make more sense mm-hmm. in the light of that framework. You know, um, I know this is going to sound like uh, self-promotion, but this is uh, genuinely a good reason people should start with big picture, or at least mm-hmm. have that part of the reading. This is where story of reality comes in. It's the most broad way of characterizing the Christian worldview. And once you kind of got that down, God, man, Jesus, cross, resurrection, you've got to get that picture of how it all flows together. Uh, Between man and Jesus, that's Genesis 3 all the way to the Gospel of John, right? Or Matthew, I should say. That's a lot of time and a lot of material. This is where the Bible Fast Forward will come in and fill in what's going on in that interim between man and Jesus that, uh, that makes sense of Jesus, Mm-hmm. Okay, so I just want to recommend that material called the Bible Fast Forward. And um, when I was a, a fairly new Christian, within the first couple of years, I had a course like that. Not in the detail that we have it, but I was I had a course like that at the place that the, the Christian community that I was at, by, taught by a, a guy who was very clever in the Old Testament, who had knew the Hebrew and everything, Mark Arrington. And uh, I remember thinking, boy, this has really helped me to hold it all in a conceptual framework that made sense of the whole, because I had the big picture, and then I could do the smaller things. I knew where to insert them and how to understand them. In fact, Greg, you just reminded me, a couple of weeks ago, we had a donor event, an event with donors, and one of the donors there told me that that teaching changed his life, oh. the, the Bible Fast Forward. He said that completely, it it changed the way he looked at the Bible. Mm-hmm. And now, obviously, I would love it if people got your teaching, but but just in general, this this idea that we can get the big picture, all of these things will make more sense. Another uh, ministry called Walk Through the Bible was really go. helpful to Same me. Same concept, right. Yeah, that was really helpful to me way back when I was at Biola in grad school. Mm-hmm. We were required to go through this presentation, and it was fun. Mm-hmm. They teach you to remember. They give you all these you know, memory aids and things, and you learn all the major points of the Old Testament. So you have this 
framework to hang everything on. That's right. And I was so, it, it was amazing to me. I had read the Bible by that point at least once. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea that the the kingdom of Israel split into two. Right. Because yeah. <laughs> I read it so slowly. Don't realize that. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'm I'm going through this thing and they just give you this this outline. It was so helpful. Anyway, it's mm-hmm. called Walk Through the Bible. You can go on there and see if there's an event near you, or you can invite them to your church and they will come. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. It is a lot of fun. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it could be boring, but it's really a lot of fun. I don't yeah. know how to explain it to you. The one part <laughs> I remember right away is uh, Saul Halfheart. David Wholehart, and also Salt, Sarah, Abraham, Lot, and Tara. You know, they give you these little yeah. mnemonic devices, and you go through these motions. Uh-huh. You're all standing up doing all these things, and and it, it sticks with you. It's very sticky, but it gives you this, this, this big-picture overview that is absolutely necessary to understand the parts properly. And by the end, you can all say all those things together. That's right. It's amazing. It, it's It's a great thing. So however you do it, do it. Do it. <laughs> yes. All right. Thank you, Tom, for your question. Send us your questions on Twitter with the hashtag STRask or go through our website on our hashtag STRask podcast page. This is Amy Hall and Greg Kokel for Stand to Reason. 